You know, you cannot be too Jewish. Thank you. I couldn't possibly agree more. Shalom and welcome to the Two Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Kohan and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Sarit Yishai Levy, author of the international bestseller and Netflix hit series, The Beauty Queen of Jerusalem, and the new novel, The Woman Beyond the Sea. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at 2jewishradio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at 2jewishradio.com. The opinions of the host and guest on 2Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. 2Jewish is paid for by 2Jewish radio programs and podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and 2Jewish. Shalom. I have some extremely big news this morning here on 2Jewish. It's actually the first time I've ever been able to say this. Our daughter, Ayala Claire Kohan, was born last week, 16 days before her due date, but very much welcome and healthy. She has red hair and excellent lungs and wide, highly aware eyes, and we are ecstatic. There's nothing at all like the experience of being present for the birth of a beautiful new human being, and a Jewish one at that. Sophie and I did not want to know the gender of our baby before birth, but without any evidence at all, my wife was quite certain that she would be a girl. This was based on, well, nothing, but she turned out to be right, and that means I now have two boys and two girls, three of them red-headed. It has been a while since I changed infant diapers, and more importantly, since I was up for three straight nights without more than an hour or so of sleep at a time. So if this two Jewish show seems less coherent than usual, please don't be too critical. In any case, there is something well beyond miraculous about the birth of a child. Our daughter came into this complicated world with all the miraculous qualities that God gives babies, the combinations of limbs, organs, and intelligence that enable the growth and creation of a full human being, a brand new one with unique qualities and talents that will emerge. It's a bit of a cliche to say that every human being is special, but it is also true. Every newborn is different, each one unique in his or her own ways. We won't know what those qualities are until they emerge as our own daughter grows and develops. But we are incredibly grateful for her joining us and our family. And so in honor of Ayelet Claire, our newborn daughter, born the day after Tubishvat, this 5783 year, a the prayer for all good and new things. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Shehechianu V'Kiyamanu V'Higiyanu Lazman Hazeh. Blessed are you, God, ruler of the universe who gives us new life, sustains us, and brings us to this wonderful moment in time. To play us in this morning on this very subject, here's a lovely Yehudit Ravitz Israeli song, The Prettiest Girl in the Preschool, Hayalda Achi Afabagan, in a jazzy version by Pink Martini and the Von Trapps, of all people. La 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 Hayalda Achi Afabagan. Ich lade mich hier fort begann. 
Yehudit Ravitz's great song about the prettiest little girl in the preschool in a jazzy rendition in honor of our daughter's birth last week. Welcome to the world, Ayelet Claire. Our guest on Two Jewish This Morning, Sarit Yishai Levy, is the Israeli author of an international best-selling novel, The Beauty Queen of Jerusalem, which has become a hit streaming series on Netflix and whose excellent new book is also a huge international success, The Woman Beyond the Sea. Meet Sarit in a few moments when we return here on Two Jewish. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. We are delighted to welcome the two Jewish. Our guest this morning, Sari Ishai Levy, is a renowned Israeli journalist and author. Her first novel, The Beauty Queen of Jerusalem, became an international bestseller and is now a hugely successful Netflix hit. Her new book is called The Woman Beyond the Sea. Good morning and welcome to Two Jewish. Good morning. So, um... Tell us a little bit about what it's like to be an international celebrity now. I don't feel a celebrity. I'm very happy that uh, uh, my book is uh, popular and around the world, and uh, also the TV series. 
but I don't feel a celebrity. I feel blessed, actually. It's uh, you're you're you write with such vividness. Um, the Beauty Queen of Jerusalem is obviously, to some degree, a, a period piece set in dramatic times in the development of the state of Israel. How did you decide to place the woman beyond the sea? How did you decide on on this novel? I don't know. I never decide ahead what I'm going to write about. I'm starting to write, and then um, then I continue. Then the images, the heroes come to my mind, and the the location, and the story, and the drama. I never uh, prepare ahead. I never think ahead. It's like a trip. It's like a, I call it life trip, because when I'm writing, it is as if I'm, you know, walking with my heroes into... Another land, another country, another another life. You come from a Sephardic family that plays an important role in uh, both of the books, uh, both the new book, Woman Beyond the Scene, of course, The Beauty Queen of Jerusalem. How much of the characters, how many of the characters are based on your own family members, your own acquaintances? So I come from a very ancient family, I'm the eighth generation in Jerusalem. My ancestors came from Toledo via Greece. And then my father's family, my grandfather actually, my father's father, come from a place called Bitola, it's in Macedonia. Um, I think that the, the community of the Jewish people in Macedonia did not have enough attention in, uh, in the Jewish legacy. Do you know that uh, most of them were uh, died in the concentration camp, and until 20 years ago, I knew nothing about it. So I thought in Woman Beyond the Sea that I should give a spot on these Jewish people who come from Macedonia and the family of um, Elia's grandmother, grandparents, who Elia is one of my my, uh, heroes, Uh, they came from Macedonia, and the grandmother tell her uh, her granddaughter all the story about about Macedonia and the Jewish people and the life there and uh, the Auschwitz story and all that. And I put it in my book because I thought it's very important to tell the story. We will continue uh, to explore The Woman Beyond the Sea with Sarit Yishai Levy, who is the author uh, not only of that, but of The Beauty Queen of Jerusalem. We come back in a moment here on To Jewish. Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a wonderful Jewish synagogue in Catalina Foothills and Northwest Tucson, celebrates a fabulous array of services, classes, and events this winter and spring. Established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives daily to serve God with joy. A progressive congregation in Northwest Tucson and the Foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the metropolitan area, Providing weekly Shabbat services, youth and adult education academy courses, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming. Join us in person for Shabbat services or come on Facebook Live. Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in our sanctuary 
in person. Call 520-276-5675. Religious School is going for school-aged children or grandchildren. Join us for our fabulous Hebrew School, Bar and Bat Mitzvah programs, Torah Tykes Experience, Confirmation, Teen programs, all in a fun, relaxed setting with great Jewish learning. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A, Tucson.org, to sign up. Beit Simcha's services, classes, and events are open to everyone. In person, Friday night and Saturday morning services. Friday night, celebration services are at 6.30 p.m. Saturday, Shabbat morning services. 9 a.m. Torah study and 10 a.m. services, all with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, leading them. Facebook page is Beit Simcha Tucson, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson. Our very musical services, available in person and by virtual experience. All of our Adult Education Academy classes are live and on Zoom. You can access those through our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson.org. Our wonderful religious school is available in blended format too. Some students live, some on Zoom. For more information about Beit Simcha to come to services, religious school, Torah Tykes, Bar and Bat Mitzvah, Confirmation, high school programs, and fabulous array of adult education academy courses, from introductory Judaism to Kabbalah and Musar, all taught live and on Zoom, and all of our services in person and on Facebook. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A, Tucson.org, or call 520-276-5675. That's 520-276-5675. BeitSimchaTucson.org. Join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, in the fastest-growing Jewish congregation in all of Arizona during our great beginning years. If you have a question, comment, compliment, or criticism, McFetch or Akfell, please email us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com. That's T-O-O JewishRadio18 at gmail. Or visit our website, 2JewishRadio.com. You can hear all past and present shows through the website, 2JewishRadio.com. Streaming us from there or downloading us. From the Apple iTunes Store is very popular Jewish podcast, or on Podbean or Spotify. We are top ten in America, according to Moment Magazine. Over two hundred thousand downloads on Podbean. Post a rating, review to Jewish where you listen to us. All of those comments help. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation. Known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve, Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. 
While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. It's Super Bowl Sunday today, an annual holiday, which is about as secular as you could possibly get. Well, except for one aspect this year, we'll talk about that in a moment. As always, we here on Two Jewish try to note the Jewish angles on this mega media sporting event, including the fact that the NFC champion Philadelphia Eagles are owned by Jeffrey Lurie, who is, of course, Jewish. Their general manager is Howie Roseman, also Jewish. And that may be about it. There is one Jewish angle on this Super Bowl that is a little troubling. For the first time in memory, a huge ad during the Super Bowl, and remember, the commercials are often more entertaining than the game, was done by a Christian evangelical group promoting the idea that he gets us. That is, Jesus gets the people watching, understands them, so they should come and pray to him or, you know, maybe convert. Now, there is nothing, save money, preventing a Jewish group from buying a Super Bowl ad to promote Jewish synagogues or travel to Israel or something. It only costs, I don't know, a billion dollars. But it's odd that one set of Super Bowl ads will not be promoting beer or razor blades or pizza or soft drinks or cars or cryptocurrency this year, but instead will be pushing a Christian religious agenda. Look. I'm not worried Jews will suddenly become Christians because of an ad during a football game. But there is nonetheless something uncomfortable about religions promoting themselves during the major American sporting event of the year, at least based on media attention. It's just uncomfortable for those of us who know the long history of Christian public proselytizing forced on Jews over the centuries, not to mention forced conversions and so on. We can only hope that the commercials will prove to at least be entertaining. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. We spoke last week about the war in Ukraine, Putin's invasion, and kind of a one-year retrospective on where things might go. We talked about the refugees last week. By the way, a friend of mine, Jonathan Ornstein, a past guest of Two Jewish a couple times in Krakow, they've helped thousands of refugees, but there are literally millions of refugees, of course, from this war. Where do you think the war is likely to go when the hard freeze becomes less hard and things become more mobile in the coming weeks? Yeah, well, first of all, just on your reference to Poland, the polls have been remarkably good about almost every aspect of this conflict. Their history with Ukrainians has not always been lovey-dovey. No, not at all. So it's all the more surprising that on this particular issue, I think for a lot of Eastern Europeans, whether former Soviet republics like Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, or 
nearby republics who were once occupied and devastated by Russia, like Poland. Like Poland, right. I think that this is more a question of standing against Russia than necessarily standing for Ukraine. But Poland was the one country and its immediate neighbor, so the transfer is very easy, that was ready to give tanks, which is what Zelensky has been pleading for over the past year very consistently. So Zelensky has been, you know, in videos and TV interviews and Zooms and personal visit to Washington, which came at great personal risk, pleading for better equipment and specifically more modern tanks. That's the one thing that he's identified as the greatest need. So there was a little bit of a standoff because the Germans, who are in many ways the leaders of the European Union, said, we won't give tanks until the U.S. does. And further, we will not permit tanks manufactured in and sold by Germany to NATO allies like Poland to be transferred to Ukraine. That would be a violation of the end-use agreement or whatever, and we won't agree to that until the U.S. goes first. So there was quite a long period, which must have been terribly frustrating for Ukraine's leaders and citizens, of after you, Alphonse, no, you first, Gaston, you know, back and forth, who goes through the door. So finally, pretty much simultaneously, the U.S. and Germany Germany. both announced that they're sending tanks. And this could be all it takes to turn the war definitively in Ukraine's favor. Morale among Russian troops is lousy. There's lots of deserters. There's all kinds of horror stories about the conditions in which they work. And more and more, they're not Russian soldiers at all. They're prisons. They're the scumbags of society. They're foreign mercenaries. They're whoever will work for some living as opposed to no living. Or the opportunity for pardons for their whatever criminal offense they've committed, that kind of thing. Right. It's a grim picture. One hopes this will be over and that Ukraine will be freed of Putin's invasion uh, sometime soon. Well, the other thing that's probably true is if Putin is as sick as everybody says he is, then he'll die soon of natural causes. And then there will be a change in leadership, and that presents at least a fig leaf for a change in policy. In other words, if a new leader says, I'm not continuing Putin's crazy war, he would be applauded. And I say he advisedly because it's extremely unlikely. That like a, a woman will become head of the that a woman is Russian be, Federation right, at this right. point. By the way, um, you know, statements about Putin's death seem to be somewhat exaggerated at this point, but we will see. Tom, thanks so much. Thank you. We will talk next week. It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor, your Bubby and Zadie New, brought to you by Too Jewish as a public service. Bernie and Esther did not come to the synagogue very often, but they were there. And one Shabbat, as they were leaving, the rabbi said, Bernie, sure it would be nice to see you and Esther here more often. I know, replied Bernie, but at least we keep the Ten Commandments. That's great, the rabbi said. I'm I'm glad to hear it. Yes, Bernie said proudly, Esther keeps six of them. I keep the other four. That was the old Jewish joke of the week, special feature of Two Jewish, just for you. You should live and be well and keep all ten.
now a word of Torah. This week in Temple, we read the portion of Mishpatim, a section that includes as many laws as nearly any part of the whole Torah. To tell the truth, after the last few weeks of spectacularly dramatic portions, featuring the highlights in the entirety of Jewish tradition, indeed of all religious history, Mishpatim can seem a major letdown. Last week, amid the smoke and thunder of Mount Sinai, we received the Ten Commandments. The week before, God parted the sea for us, and we miraculously crossed on dry land and sang about it. And in the weeks before that, ten plagues struck the Egyptians. Pharaoh and Moses had their duel of wills in the desert, and we found freedom. But this week's portion of Mishpatim is nothing more than a collection of laws about how we interact with other human beings. Civil legislation. That is exactly what a Mishpat, see, Mishpatim, is. It's a law of human interaction. How exciting. How do you handle someone else's property? How to assess punitive damages for a person who injures another or destroys someone else's property? How do we act when somebody puts his or her property in trust with us? What do we do if we find a lost object? There are laws of manslaughter, theft, damages, and accidental injury. Rules about interest on loans and on and on. If the Torah is truly our fundamental moral text, this is an array of detailed legislation about human interaction that seems so trivial as not to belong here at all. Shouldn't this stuff be in some legal commentary somewhere? Not here in the heart of the Torah? I mean, why do we have Mishpatim at all? I believe that there is a profound lesson here about our essential nature. Most of us really don't much care for rules. We like freedom. Rules bind us, restrict us, prevent us from doing what we want to do when we want to do it, frustrate us, limit us in arbitrary ways. And the most specific and important kind of rules our society has, well, that's the code of laws. So naturally, we human beings do not love the law or its practitioners as a group. Lawyer jokes would not be so popular if there wasn't a profound ambivalence about the entire profession. And you can make a case that the dismal reputation that politicians have is in part attributable to the fact that most of them originally practiced law and that their basic function is to create and administer laws. Let's face it, we don't like laws, but without them and without enforcement of laws, We fallible human beings wouldn't function well at all. In fact, the Mishnah tells us we would tear each other apart. Where anarchy reigns, justice is absent. And that's where our Torah portion of Mishpatim comes in. For we need law, and we need limits. We might not like either one very much, but Judaism understands that if we are to be truly good or truly free, We must observe the laws and rules of human decency embodied in the code of legislation that make up Mishpatim. Because before we can love other human beings as we love ourselves, we first must respect that human being's person and property. If we can successfully do that, well then we just might learn to treat one another with holiness. And then as Mishpatim ultimately teaches us, we can find God. At the end of this week's Parsha, after all these rules and laws, these 
retorts and talionuses, God actually reveals a glimpse of the divine essence to Moses. The lesson is clear. We can only see real holiness when we begin by respecting our fellow men and women. When we come to understand that we are all in this together and that the way to God is through the ways we learn to work together, well, then we may learn to trust one another and after that, create a world of holiness. The American Jewish poet Adrian Rich put it very well in her poem On Memory. Freedom. It isn't once to walk out under the Milky Way, feeling the rivers of light, the fields of dark. Freedom is daily, prose-bound, routine remembering, putting together, inch by inch, the starry world's putting them together using these little mishpatim to make this world truly free and therefore holy. When we come back in a moment on to Jewish, author Sarit Yishai Levy will tell us what it's like to be an international sensation as a novelist late in life and how central her Sephardic heritage is to her storytelling. Find out when we return in a moment here on To Jewish. We continue with our Two Jewish Update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. While controversy continues to swirl around the Netanyahu government's proposed judicial reform that would essentially neuter the independent judiciary in Israel and leave it subservient to the Knesset, not a great idea in Israel, well, While all that was going on, another bad idea fell on the weight of its own putridity. A bill to outlaw egalitarian prayer anywhere at the Kotel, the Western Wall, and make it an actual crime collapsed. When the proposed legal change was made public, they tried to do it quietly, the Netanyahu government rapidly backed down and apologized. Similarly, last week in Israel, Bibi Netanyahu was forced to remove the highly corrupt Arya Deri, leader of the Shas Sephardic political party, from his cabinet-level ministerial positions because of Deri's previous criminal convictions. Deri had agreed in a binding plea bargain agreement not to take on ministerial roles in any future government. When he blithely ignored that, basically backed out of it, and brought Shas into the Netanyahu government coalition and accepted ministerial jobs, the court ruled against him. In Israel, there are limits to corruption. Even in Israel. Netanyahu always seems to ride a fine line in this area, but Arya Deri has long obliterated the line. It's yet another indication that the Netanyahu government will prove to be about one thing keeping Bibi in power as Prime Minister of Israel, no matter who or what he needs to step on and over to make that happen. A great popular music composer, Bert Bacharach, died last week in a songwriting career that ran from the mid-1950s in the famed Brill Building in New York all the way to the 2010s. Bacharach composed, produced, conducted, played piano, and contributed a whole list of classics to the American songbook. The moment I wake up, before I put on my makeup, I say a little prayer for you. Oh, I'll comb in my hair now, and wondering what dress to wear now. 
I say a little prayer for you. Forever, forever, you'll stay in my heart and I will love you forever and ever. We never will part of how I'll love you together, together. That's how it must be to live without you. It only means heartbreak for you. A seven-time Grammy winner, three-time Oscar winner, Emmy winner, and Tony nominee, born in Kansas City but raised in Forest Hills, Queens, New York, Burt Backrack was classically trained as a pianist and composer at several conservatories, including one in Montreal, Canada, and at the Music Academy of the West in Montecito, California. I studied there. Bert Bacharach studied with the outstanding Jewish composer Darius Mio, crediting him as the greatest influence on his musical development. He loved jazz and snuck out of his classical lessons to hear jazz greats in the New York clubs, who also influenced him. Bert Bacharach served in the U.S. military, where he met another soldier, Vic Damone, a singer Bacharach worked with as pianist and conductor after he got out of the service. He worked with a variety of other singers, Steve Lawrence for one, and sometimes played gigs in the Catskills for Joel Gray when nothing else worked out. Bacharach's first big break was working with Marlena Dietrich as music director during her worldwide tours. That gained Bacharach recognition over the five years they worked together. In 1957, he met Hal David at the famed Brill Building in New York, where so many great American songwriter teams got their start, many of them Jewish. Uh, most of them. They had some early hits, including two number one recordings, but Hal David and Burt Bacharach didn't fully collaborate until 1963, when they formed one of the most fertile songwriting teams in history. From then, they wrote over 100 songs together, working often with Dionne Warwick, whom Bacharach discovered when she was a session accompanist. And they had a myriad of hits, including 22 top 40 singles together. If you see me walking down the street And I start to cry Each time we meet Walk on was a time when it seemed like every piece of popular sheet music not written by Lennon and McCartney was written by Backrack and David. Do you know the way to San Jose? I've been away so long. I may go wrong and lose my way. Do you know the way to San Jose? I'm going back to find some peace of mind in San Jose. LA is a Backrack also wrote for films very successfully from his James Bond theme, The Look of Love, to his Arthur's theme. He won his first Oscar for a tune rather randomly but memorably included in the film Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Raindrops are falling on my head 
Just like the guy whose feet are too big for his bed Nothing seems to fit Those raindrops are falling on my head They keep falling You could be forgiven for not realizing Bert Bachrach was Jewish. As he said, my parents were Jewish, but we never made a big deal out of it. But of course, like so many great American songwriters, he and Hal David were both Jewish, as was his later collaborator and third of four wives, Carol Bayer Saker. What do you get when you fall in love? A guy with a pin to thirst your bubble. That's what you get for your trouble. Bert Bachrach continued to have success in later years. Uh, remember this Naked Eyes cover of a Bert Bachrach song? I walk along the city streets you used to walk along with me And every step I take reminds me of just how In 2008, the Grammys named Burke Backrack the greatest living composer, and he and Hal David won the inaugural Gershwin Prize awarded by the Library of Congress to songwriters. Backrack was an incredible musician, and his many songs will continue to be played and sung as long as America has popular music. And I never thought I'd feel this way And as far as I'm concerned Glad I got the chance to say That I do believe I love you And if I should ever go away Well then close your eyes and try That's the two Jewish news of Jews round the world. We welcome back to Two Jewish, our guest this morning, visiting with us from Israel. Sari Ishai Levy is a, a highly decorated Israeli journalist and author. Her first novel, The Beauty Queen of Jerusalem, became an international bestseller, has sold uh, hundreds of thousands of copies in Israel, which is really something. There's only 8 million people in Israel. It's been translated now into 17 languages, which is adapted into the TV series that won the Israeli TV Award for Best Drama and is a big hit on Netflix. 
It's won a variety of Publishers Association prizes and the Stymatsky Prize for Best Selling Book of the Year in Israel. Her second novel, The Woman Beyond the Sea, was published uh, originally in 2019. It's available now in translation, that is in English. It too won the Publishers Association Gold and Platinum Prizes in Israel. She is from a Sephardic family. She was telling us uh, part of her family is from Toledo, Spain, and the rest from Macedonia, which plays an important part uh, really in both novels. Um, I want to ask something about the depiction of the men in, in The Woman Beyond the Sea. They're not always such great guys. Uh, can you tell us about that a little bit? First of all, I think that the father is a great guy. I think, uh, you know, Leah's father is a very tolerant person. I think he tolerates all his wife, Lily, uh, all her craziness and yeah. all her strange behavior, behavior. And he's a very, he's an amazing person. One of the characters, Ari, first husband of Leah, he is an arrogant person. He thinks that he's a genius. He, he, you're right. He, he is not a very nice guy. Yeah. But I think Eldad, her lover, the one that she met after she separated from Ari, heals her and she heals him. Eldad is a veteran of the Yom Kippur War. He is wounded, but not uh, physically, but mentally from the war. And uh, Elia is wounded, not physically, but mentally from her husband. And when they find each other, they heal each other. I don't think all the guys are bad in my book. Only one of them. I accept that. Um, although some of them um, have an interesting relationship with fidelity, I would say, uh, which makes for interesting reading. You talk uh, indeed about Bitola in Macedonia, where your family is from in North Macedonia, and mention how most of the community was destroyed, of course, in the Holocaust. Um, the the Sephardic element, I think, in literature has been um, somewhat underserved in Israeli in Israeli writing. Uh, though though there are many famed and important Sephardic authors, do you sometimes feel like you're advocating for your heritage? I want to tell you a story about me. Uh, as a journalist, twenty years ago, I went to Macedonia. As, uh, you know, I came in with a journalist, uh, with a delegation from Israel, and uh, I wanted to, to, to look after my ancestors there, because my grandfather never told anything to my, to my father or to his, uh, you know, or to his uh, other children, anything about his family, and we know nothing about his family. I know my mother's side, I know nothing about my, my father's side, and I was shocked. When I was told 20 years ago, I'm talking to you 20 years ago, when I understood that most of the population of uh, Bitola and uh, Skopje in Macedonia were sent to the Auschwitz camp. And then I realized for the first time in my life that although I'm from a Sephardic family, I'm also a victim of the Holocaust. I realized that my grandparents, my, uh, the, the parents of my father, of my grandfather, and his uncles and his aunts and maybe his cousins and sisters and brother, were well, all of them, you know, all of them uh, were killed in, in Auschwitz. We don't know anything about them. And my grandfather didn't say anything about them. So I was so shocked to find out 
but also me who, you know, never thought that I have anything to do with the Holocaust because I was born in Israel and I'm a generation in Israel. Also me, I'm also a victim of the Holocaust. This was a great shock for me. The great shock to find out about uh, the, the Macedonian uh, community, Jewish community. And it affected my life ever since. I never stopped thinking about it. I'm talking about it a lot. And that's why I put it in my book. And that, for the, your, the other question that you asked me, yes, I do, I do feel that uh, I need to tell the story that was not told before. It's very important for me to tell the story of the Sephardic Jewish in Jerusalem during all the generations, and also the story of the Bitola Jewish during the, the Holocaust. When you create stories like The Woman Beyond the Sea, or The Beauty Queen of Jerusalem for that matter, do you feel like you're filling in the stories that can't be told anymore because they're gone? I think that if I won't tell them, nobody will, yes. I'm not sure my children know the stories if I'm not telling. You know, if I'm not telling these stories, my children will never know them because nobody's telling them. The, Somehow uh, I feel that I have a responsibility, a responsibility that the, the heritage and the stories and the, and the tradition will go on. When you wrote The Beauty Queen of Jerusalem, did you ever anticipate it becoming uh, a, a television series, an international sensation like that? No, no. It was a great shock. You know, I, I wrote the book and I was quite pretty. When I was not a young woman, you know, many, I was a very, very, um, you know, I was a journalist for many years, but, uh, but uh, you know, I wrote the book when I was 65. I, I published the book when I was 65 years old. And it was like a dream come true because all my life I wanted to become a writer, to write a novel. I was looking up at uh, you know, people like Amos Oz, Meir Shalev. Uh, Meir Shalev is also a friend of mine. And I said, wow, I cannot be like them. I, how, can I, how can I think that I can be like them? And, and I became one of them, <laughs> which is fantastic. It's amazing. Well, it's, it's an amazing accomplishment. In the Beauty Queen of Jerusalem, you're really writing sort of the the prehistory of Israel in so many ways. In The Woman Beyond the Sea, it's, uh, I, I would say, while both are personal books, it, this is, um, although historical, it's less entwined with the whole development of Israel, and it moves it farther on. Uh, did you see it, did you originally think about continuing forward with the characters from the Beauty Queen of Jerusalem and their families, or did you see it as a break completely? I took a very... I don't know how I did it for the first, first book, you know, to write such an historical uh, novel that start in the in the middle of the 19th century and end in the in the middle of the 20th century. Of Israel, of the of the land of Israel and the Eretz Israel is fascinating, and it always uh, I was always fascinated by it. And even in the Women Beyond the Sea. I'm telling the story of Tel Aviv before the state of Israel. There is, you can find there the story of, of the city of Tel Aviv before it, uh, 1948. And uh, then I continue to write the history of Israel by telling the story, the terrible story, the sad story of the Yom Kippur War, 
where uh, so many young people uh, died, and uh, there was a nickname for the military cemetery in North Tel Aviv uh, in these days. We called it Ir uh, Anoar, which means in Hebrew, in English, uh, the city of the youngsters. Kid town or teen town or something, maybe. Ir Anoar means the uh, city of, uh, of, the, of youth. the teenagers. Yeah, teens, right. And uh, there used to be every summer in Tel Aviv a festival that used to be called Ir Anoar. So during the Yom Kippur War, when so many youngsters died, we called the cemetery, you know, the city of the teenagers. It was a terrible time, and I'm telling the story of it, and I'm telling not only about the war, and there's a description of a terrible, terrible crab. Uh, um, How do you say crab in English? Uh, a terrible, terrible, what was the word? I'm sorry, say it again. Crab. Do you know how to say crab in, in English? A fight. Yeah. A terrible fight. A battle. It takes place in the Golan Heights. Yeah. I describe the fight and I describe the war and also the, you know, the circumstances of the war. So I do write about the history of Israel in, uh, in Woman Beyond the Sea. Mm-hmm. But I think that the main story in Woman Beyond the Sea is about the relationship between the three women, Lily, the mother, Elia, the daughter, and uh, Rachel, the grandmother. And it's about, uh, actually, it's a story about understanding and love. I, I really believe that only if you understand and then you forgive, you can love. It's a beautiful statement. Only if you can forgive, you can love. Can you love? In developing and becoming, you know, uh, a novelist at uh, the age of 65, I mean, that's a great story all by itself. What was the biggest thing you had to overcome? What I think about me, because I was known as a journalist, you know, and I thought what people keep becoming writer, and uh, I had to overcome. How could I say? I was afraid that nobody would love my book except me, that I would be the only one who loved it. You'd be the only one who bought your own book. Yeah. You know, I, I used to walk in the in the bookshop and I saw such a beautiful books and so many books by fantastic Israeli writers and I said, Why? Why would someone will put his hand on my book and buy it? It's very expensive, you know, Israel are very expensive. Why would someone will pay a hundred she- shekel for my book and prefer it over Amos Oz's book, for example? I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, couldn't believe it when I heard that my book become uh, such a success, really. And in ten days, it become like number one in the bestsellers uh, uh, list of Haaretz, and it was uh, it was a shock for me, a great shock. And and a very lovely shock, I w- I would add. Sorry, the storm that you're experiencing in Israel is beginning to affect the phone line. I just want to tell everybody, uh, the book is called The Woman Beyond the Sea. It's a great read. Will this also become a big Netflix show? That's my next, my last question for you. It is in a development to be adopted as a TV series. Let's pray that uh, Netflix will, uh, will be, you know... Let's pray that it will be also in Netflix, but uh, first of all, it has to become a... An Israeli success first, right? Yeah, yeah, yes. Right. But we are working on it. I hope we'll do it. And 
there's one more thing that I want to say. I wrote already two books, two novels, and now I'm finishing to write my third one. And uh, hopefully it uh, will be published in, uh, in the late uh, 2023. As we say, Chazak right? Isn't that the Sephardic? I want to thank Yishai Levy, for a great visit here on Two Jewish. The book is called The Woman Beyond the Sea, and uh, you can find it wherever books are sold. And you can. I also encourage you to watch The Beauty Queen of Jerusalem. It's a great watch. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. When we come back on Two Jewish, we'll hear about next week's guest. Get a final musical play out. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki Tribe. Thanks for being here with us this morning on To Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Join us next week. Our guest will be Michael Twitty, Afro-American kosher food innovator and expert, winner of the Jewish Book of the Year, author of Kosher Soul, The Faith and Food Journey of an African-American Jew. And join us, Congregation Beit Simcha, each Friday night for services in Oneg Shabbat at 6.30 p.m., Saturday morning too, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services, Torah reading and Kiddush, in person and on our Facebook page. Our play out this morning is a classic Naomi Shemer track, Chorshat Eucalyptus. The view of the lovely eucalyptus grove remains the same in the beautiful north, even after all these years. One of her best. My friends, have a Shavua Tov, a good week, a healthy week, and a week we pray profoundly of peace. <laughs> אז אבא על גבעה בנה לבית חלפו האביבים חצי מעברה את הלטלים הפכו שיבה בינתיים אבל וגם אותה התפורה חורשת האקליפטוס הגשר הסירה וריח המלוח על התותחים והשלום חזר בסוף הקיץ וכל התינוקות היו לאנשים ושוב על הגבעה הקיבו Sponsored by Two Jewish Radio Programs, Tucson, Arizona